Matthew 13. We're going to notice, for the most part, the balance, uh, or the most of the chapter, at least through uh, uh, 23, half the chapter in our uh, sermon tonight. But I want us to begin by noticing the first nine verses. This is a very familiar parable to us. The same day when Jesus uh, went out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the, fowl, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others uh, fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some of uh, a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. As I was considering different topics over the past several weeks, uh, I kept going back to this familiar parable, probably the most familiar parable and well-known parable that the Lord ever spoke. And uh, I would go back and read the parable, at least uh, the first parts of the parable, and, and consider it. And as I work to put a sermon together, normally what I do is uh, before I begin to even write down anything or type anything, I have the sermon for the most part laid out in my mind. And I begin to consider this and consider it and and I would look at other passages in the Bible, and it seemed like I was drawn back to this Matthew 13. And what I try to do is to offer a variety of topics when I preach sermons. And, of course, the thing about the Bible is there are various sermons that you can get from a single passage. And so, as I begin to think about this parable, very familiar, I began to look at it, in perhaps a, a different way than I had ever looked at it. I wanted to consider some aspects of the parable that I had never considered before. Let me preface the sermon tonight with uh, a statement that a man had written in a book, Philip Yancey. He told about a World War II soldier who was part of the liberation of the Nazi concentration camp at Dachau, Germany. And of course, that is where thousands of Jews had been exterminated. Now, this is the story that the man told. And we would not agree with everything that he stated, but this is his story, and we're going to use it as illustration into something else. This man wrote, he said, A buddy and I were assigned to a boxcar. Inside were human corpses stacked in neat rows exactly like firewood. The Germans, ever meticulous, had planned out the rows, alternating the heads and the feet, accommodating the different sizes and shapes of bodies. Our job was like moving furniture. We would pick up each body so light and carry it to a designated area. Now remember, this is the liberation force. They'd gone in, they'd liberated this camp, and this is what they had left behind. This is what the Germans had been doing. He said, uh, he went on to say, some fellows couldn't do this part. 
They stood by the barbed wire fences, retching. I couldn't believe it the first time we came across a person in the pile still alive. But it was true. Incredibly, some of the corpses weren't corpses. They were human beings. We yelled for doctors and they went to work on these survivors right away. I spent two hours in that boxcar. Two hours that for me included every known emotion. Rage, shame, pity, revulsion. Every negative emotion, I should say. They came in waves, all but the rage. It stayed fueling our work. After we had taken the few survivors to a makeshift clinic, we turned our attention to the Nazis. The SS officers in charge of DECAL, our captain asked for a volunteer to escort a group of a dozen SS officers to the interrogation center. And a guy named Chuck, his hand shot right up. So he volunteered. Chuck claimed to have worked for Al Capone before the war, and no one of us doubted it. Well, Chuck grabbed his machine gun and prodded the group of SS prisoners down the trail. They walked ahead of him with their hands locked behind their heads, their elbows sticking out on either side. A few minutes after they disappeared into the trees, we heard the rattling burp of a machine gun and three long bursts of fire. Soon Chuck came strolling out, smoke still curling from the tip of his weapon. They all tried to run away, he said, with a kind of leer. It was that day that I felt called by God to become a pastor. Again, we're not going to agree with, with his theology, but that's not the point. First, there was the horror of the corpses in the boxcar. I could not absorb such a scene. I did not even know that such absolute evil existed. But when I saw it, I knew beyond doubt that I'd spend my life serving whatever opposed such evil, serving God. Then came the Chuck incident. I had a nauseating fear that the captain might call upon me to escort the next group of SS guards, and even a more dreadful fear that if he did, I might do the same thing that Chuck had done. The beast that was in those guards was also in me. The beast within those guards, the beast within Chuck, the beast was also in me. And that was written in the book Descending into Greatness by Bill Hybels on pages 144 through 145. Again, there's going to be a lot that we disagree with Mr. Yancey in this book, especially when it comes to human nature and the idea of being born sinful. But he did understand that the heart of people can be full of wickedness and evil if they choose for it to be the case. Jeremiah recorded for us, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, though many do not grasp the condition of their own hearts, God knows the condition of everyone's heart. He continued saying in verse 10, I, the Lord, searcheth the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. I think that is the point, the fruit of his doings, the choice to do certain things. God knows all there is to know about each of us. And as we study the parable of the sower, I want us to take this and we can learn from the parable of the sower that God does clearly know all there is to know about each of us. But the thing maybe more important to the individual is how well do I know myself? How well do I know my heart? And that was the point of the illustration. This man understood that he had that capability because of the rage and the anger 
and all the other emotions that came with sin, the destruction of wicked people, that he might place himself in the, in the position where Chuck had placed himself and to do those things and maybe do something that he knew he should not do, even though it looked as justified as it could have been. We need to understand our hearts. And that's what I've entitled the sermon. We better know our hearts. And as we look at this familiar parable, I want us to learn to recognize certain things about our hearts and where we stand in relation to God. There's something to learn first from the sower. The sower, perhaps the the second most uh, talked about person within the the parable, the seed probably being the next, and then, of course, the soils. But we're going to look at it perhaps a little differently. There must first be devotion to the one doing the sowing. Okay? We have to be devoted. We must be absolutely dedicated to that work. If I'm going to understand my heart, and I'm going to understand and know who I am and what I am, I have to be dedicated to what I propose to be dedicated to. All who sow must realize, if we don't sow, there will be no harvest. We need to understand that. I need to understand about myself. If I don't go out and sow the seed, there's not going to be a harvest. And it is imperative for us to sow the seed to which we have dedicated our lives, the gospel of Christ. Without preachers and teachers, how can it be sown? Romans 10, 13 through 17. There is a lack of people to do the sowing. That's what God wants us to understand. Jesus said, don't ask for there to be a harvest. He said, don't say in three or four months there's going to be a harvest. He said, ask for those who are willing to harvest. He said, the fields are white unto harvest right now, John 4, verse 35. Notice the sower went forth, didn't he? He made an effort. He went to do something. We need to go forth in the Spirit of Psalm 126, verse 6. The psalmist said, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. There must be devotion in the one who sows, but there also must be discipline. We have discipline in every aspect of our lives, don't we? We must discipline ourselves to sowing the seed. Do we always want to sow the seed? There may be days when we don't feel like sowing the seed. There may be days when something has happened in our lives and we're concentrating and maybe we become a little self-absorbed and, and we don't want to sow the seed. We, we have that in other aspects of our lives, don't we? Do we want to go to work every single morning that we wake up? Are there some mornings when... Uh, we would just like to lay in bed and feel sorry for ourselves or whatever the case may be? Well, sure. But we have to be disciplined. Unless we go, there can be no harvest. Also, we must continually train on how to sow the seed. Most people in the, in the business world, especially in the healthcare field, always doing continuing education. I know more about continuing education than most people. And I've never even had any. But I know about it. And that means we have to stay on top of what's going on, right? We have to learn. Well, we do the same thing as Christians. How do we, how do we continue to 
trained to be sowers. Well, we do it in personal Bible study, don't we? Paul talked about rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not being ashamed. Rightly dividing. And we do it also collectively as we come together to worship, right? Paul taught the Corinthians how to behave in their worship, and he called it when you come together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Demonstrating the importance of the behaviors in collective worship with the saints. We need to come together, want to come together, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. That's how we train to to be sowers and continually learn, right? The discipline to continue sowing is needed uh, because not every seed is going to produce, right? When we look in the parable of the sower, 25%. That's all the all the uh, harvest that there was. Seventy five percent of the seed did not produce, so we we have to still be willing to to go forward. And as sowers of the gospel, we have to realize that not everybody is going to adhere and obey and accept the gospel of Christ. They're not going to be converted. But we also have to realize it's not our job to convert everybody. It's our job to sow the seed. And that's what Paul told those in Corinth. He said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.17 Now, of course, we have to understand what he meant. He wasn't in any way saying baptism was not necessary. What he was saying was his job as a missionary was to go forth and preach the gospel. God will give the increase. If he had gone forth and preached and And no one obeyed the gospel. He was still successful because his job was to to deliver the gospel and it's the job of the uh, person to adhere to the gospel. The Lord will certainly provide the harvest. And each Christian is to be a sore, Matthew 4, 19. And we see it in Acts 1, 8, how they went forth sowing the seed. Now there are things that we learn about the sower. And when we look at this idea of knowing our hearts, we have to understand, and when we look at this parable, we have to understand there's a responsibility. I have to look into myself. Am I adhering to that responsibility? Is there a devotion in my heart? Is there discipline in my heart? But there are some things about the seed that we need to understand too. And maybe we haven't looked at it this way necessarily. We learn about the worth of the seed. The seed is priceless. The seed is the most important, precious thing the world has ever been given. And we have been tasked with the responsibility to carry that out. It's the most important thing the world could ever hear. And we need to be able to produce that and give that. It's a living and powerful message, isn't it? It is a message that... All people need to hear. It is a message that changes the lives of the hearer if allowed to. Jesus, of course, said the seed was the gospel, Luke 8, verse 11. And that should make us understand the great responsibility, right, that we have to uh, to send that gospel out. Consider this. The only way anyone can learn about Jesus is to be told. That's how it was in the very beginning, wasn't it? Jesus, the Word, who became the man Jesus, 
left heaven, the glory of heaven, to come tell the world. Now, what if he had decided not to come? What if he had decided that he didn't have the devotion or the, or the discipline, and boy was he disciplined, to come and endure what he endured to bring that message? Notice what Paul said. He said, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, Philippians 2, beginning with verse 1, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love. What love? Well, we're going to notice. Being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Christ did nothing that was selfish. He was never conceited. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's exactly what the Lord did. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Let this, again he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the example who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What if Jesus had not gone forth like the sower of the parable? There's not a one of us here that would enjoy eternity in heaven. There's not a one of us here who would enjoy the blessings of uh, being a member of Christ's church in this world today. And if we do not go forth, untold numbers of people will never enjoy the blessing of heaven. The gospel is precious. It's of great worth because it is a transformer of people. That's why Paul demanded, Romans 12 verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that what is uh, good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So when we look at the seed, we need to understand its worth. Now I think that we all realize that, and I don't think that's lost on us at all when we read this parable. But let's understand this point about the seed, one that I had not often considered. When we consider our hearts... And we better understand and know our hearts by studying this parable. We learn the worth, but we also learn the work of the seed. The seed is not dormant. The seed does something, right? Once it is sown, it will do something. Now, the seed can't sow itself. But once it is sown, it does a particular work. And that's an example to us to perform our work. Notice that... Once the gospel is sown, it will not corrupt the soil. That's not its work. It won't corrupt the soil. It will not turn into something different than what it was when it was sown. That's not the work that it uh, performs. It will do exactly what it's designed to do, and that is to create or to produce Christians. So, the issue must lie in the soil itself. Will the soil do its work? If we're going to look at the seed and understand its worth, and that the seed does work, that's our example. We better know our hearts. 
We better understand the responsibility of the soil as a person, an individual. I believe this is where we get to the heart of the message. And the, and the message is the heart, right? One of the soils mentioned represents you and it represents me. One of these four soils, we can be found. We are in di- on display in this parable. And the heart is responsible for allowing the seed to do its work. So let's notice the soil. Well, the first one mentioned was a hard soil. It was a hard, packed soil. Within the parable, it is the, the, the byway, the edges of the road. The seed is thrown and it'll, it'll go on to the edge. We might say the ditch line. Now, the seed was never allowed to get into the ground. It was never allowed to, to sink into the ground. The soil didn't allow it because it was hardened. It wasn't allowed to, to germinate. It simply laid on top of the soil. It was exposed to the elements and ultimately the birds of the air came by and stole it away and ate the seed. Now this is the picture of one who hears the Word of God and flatly refuses to obey it. Never allowing the gospel to penetrate the heart. See, what, what is the responsibility of the soil? Well, if we look at the work of the seed and we mirror that, the responsibility of the soil is to allow the seed to come in and allow it to do its job. It isn't that the person could not receive the seed. It was that they refused to receive it. It has a hardened heart. Refuses God's call to salvation. Refuses God's call to repentance. And Satan is more than happy to allow that person to continue in their hardness of heart, stealing away the seed of God. So how is it that Satan steals away the seed out of the heart? Well, just exactly like the the bird steals the seed from the side of the road. It lays there long enough, and if our hearts are hard enough and continues to be hard we eventually just ignore the seed and it is as if someone takes it away. Because that's really what happens, isn't it? It's taken away and we allow that to happen. That's a serious condition. That's a serious condition in which one finds himself who has a hardened heart and that person will eventually find themselves in eternal damnation. God advises the hard-hearted, Hosea 10 verse 12, to sow for yourselves righteousness Reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. The soil will produce no fruit when it is hardened, and that individual is not a child of God. Then Jesus mentions the rocky soil. There's no depth to that soil. This soil isn't soil that has rocks mixed in amongst it. It is simply a thin layer of soil on a bedrock. It's not deep. There's nothing there. It's just very, very thin. And so what happens is this soil is very fertile and it will allow the seed to sink into it and it will germinate and it will spring up fairly quickly. But what happens when the sun comes out? Well, there's no depth to the soil, no way to to gain nutrients or to gain water or anything, so it just simply withers away. It's not going to to be able to do anything. Now this is the picture 
of the person who hears the gospel, they understand the gospel, but they are shallow in their commitment, and they simply eventually just wither away. And they do not allow their faith to carry them on to salvation. Now, that heart does not learn about the seed's work, does it? That heart is not mirroring the work of the seed because they're not allowing the soil to do its work. Seed will do its work if allowed, but the soil must in conjunction with the seed do its work. Lack of a good root system. Not willing to to persevere. Now we've seen many who started out well like that, right? Many who started out well, we it appeared as if they were going to be faithful. They worked hard and Paul spoke to that. When, he, when talking to the Galatians, Galatians 5 verse 7, he said, You ran well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Now let's understand what that statement means. He said, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who was he writing to? He was writing to a bunch of people who had obeyed the truth. The churches in Galatia, Galatians 1 verse 1. So what does that mean? Someone can't say, Well, they weren't Christians. Yes, they were Christians. What stopped you from continuing to obey the truth? Your shallowness of conviction. Not enough root system. They chose to stop obeying the truth. Then, of course, Jesus spoke of the thorny soil. Now, again, that soil, much like the rocky soil, was very fertile. It could produce, but it was unprepared. It wasn't ready to do the necessary work. And it was covered with with weeds and and the possibility of weeds, right? Now, it received the seed, it was germinated, it sprang up, but just as soon as the seed began to grow, the thorns and the thistles and things like that began to grow too. And it overpowered the seed and it destroyed it. Now, here's the picture of that person. They respond to the gospel in a positive manner. They obey the gospel in sincere faith, but it's not long till they begin to look around. They begin to see perhaps family members who continually badger them about their faith because maybe they left a a particular denomination. Or they look at the things in this world and they have to stop doing certain things because Christians don't behave in ways that the world behaves. And so they have to be able to curtail their lifestyles and they have to be able to Uh, watch themselves and understand who they are and know their hearts. And they're not willing to do it. And so the things of this world begins to distract them. We saw that happen when, when Peter, Matthew chapter 14, stepped outside of the boat onto the water and began to walk to Jesus. He walked on the water for at least a few steps. And then he began to notice the waves heard the wind, I'm sure he felt the spray on his face, and he became distracted, and he began to sink. That's like the thorny soil. He took his eyes off of Christ, and he began to sink away. The thorny soil is the person who values the things of this world more than Christ. John 3 talks about a a man called... uh, Demas. It left me there for a moment. No, it's not Demas. Who is it, Cameron? Demas? Huh? 
speak up. No, John, third, third John, I'm sorry. Anyway, he wouldn't allow people to come into the church. He treated the church as if it were a country club, right? And then, when we do go back and look at Demas, when Paul talked about loving this present world, see, they liked the things of this world. The man of third John liked the, liked the authority that he had given himself within the church. He wasn't being faithful. Demas looked around and forsook Paul. He forsook God because he liked living in this world. See, that's the person who is faced with the thorny soil. That person will not enter into heaven. And then, of course, we come to the good soil. Jesus talked about that soil. But why was that soil good? Maybe this is something we need to understand. That soil was prepared. Who prepares our soil? Of course, in the parable... The, the sower is preparing the soil, and there is something to that. But we have to prepare our own hearts, don't we? We have to place ourselves in a position to want to accept the gospel of Christ. It was prepared, this soil was. It did its work. It recognized the work that the seed performed, and it mirrored that work. And in conjunction, something was produced. The seed lands in that soil. It works its way down. It's been prepared. There aren't any hard spots in that soil. There aren't any weeds in that soil. It's very deep. So when the sun comes out, it can produce a root system that goes way down and it, it is able to feed itself and receive the nutrients that are necessary. That is the person who's heard the gospel and has obeyed the requirements of God. Obeying the gospel plan of salvation. We know what that is. We talk about it all the time. All of us here are Christians. We understand the faith, the repentance, the confession, and the baptism. But we have to continue to work on our soil, don't we? Our hearts. That's where we're at today. We better know our hearts. Am I tending to my soil? Is our soil prepared to weather the difficulties of life? I think maybe that's the question. Do we know our hearts? And are we determined to do whatever's necessary? to get to heaven and to accomplish that goal. What's going to be produced in the harvest from that good soil? A changed life will be produced, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Righteousness will be produced, Hebrews 12, verse 11. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, beginning with verse 22. We will produce, we will produce praise to God, Hebrews 13, 15. But maybe here's one of the most important things that it will produce. It will simply produce reproduction. Right? That's what we do. And we do that by sowing the seed. I don't know that we can separate the aspects of this parable once the, the harvest has been collected. Because then the harvest becomes the sower. The, the, the sower recognizes the work of the seed. And he recognizes that not only must he prepare his soil to continually be pleasing to God, he must help others prepare their soil as well. If there's no fruit, there is no salvation. We better know our hearts because God knows them. What kind of soil are we today? Some hearts have been so hardened that they ignore God and they'll go into eternity that way. Some hearts are shallow. They don't have any depth of conviction. And when 
Times get tough, they simply wither and fade away. Some hearts are distracted by the weeds of this life. We need to be careful about that. But some, some soil, some soil is good soil. And it produces a bountiful harvest. And God requires that. They produce because the seed is sown. The seed is powerful. And the soil is prepared. If you need to answer the Lord's invitation tonight, considering this question or this statement, we better know our hearts. If you need to commit yourself to God, because you've been unfaithful, do that tonight. Know your heart. God knows it. But if you need to answer this Lord's invitation, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.